Welcome to Valley Community Church. Our Sunday sermons are available online to help you grow in your Christian faith. Our messages are practical and applicable truths from the Bible for today's life challenges. And now, Senior Pastor David Schmaltz. All right, for those of you that don't know me, I'm Pastor Jamie. I'm the Associate Pastor here at Valley. Uh, Pastor David and Miss Andrea are taking some time off and just enjoying a little stay va- staycation, I guess as they call it. And um, Pastor Dave's given me the privilege to preach in this worship series, which is hard, um, you know, because you know, he told me, he said, okay, I want you to kind of stay in this section of Scripture and to this, but then you can preach, you know, on this, this, this. I'm like, oh, man. I've never colored in the lines very well, let alone preached in the lines very well. But he gave me instructions, so I'm going to do my very best to, to make him proud. So what we're going to be doing is uh, we're going to be taking a look at the restoration of the temple, uh, which is found in Ezra. So our main text is going to be in Ezra uh, chapter 3, but we're not going to get there quite yet because I want to do a few things first. Well, first of all, I want to recap what Pastor Dave was talking about last week, and that was... Uh, He told us about a young boy, King David, that had a passion to serve God. He painted a picture of King David out in the field playing his his harp and his lyre and worshiping God. And God said, there he is. There's David. That's the boy that I've been waiting for. I'm going to bring the Messiah through his line. So King David, as he became king, his heart burned with passion for God. We know that he killed a bear and a lion in the wilderness. He killed Goliath. He slew tens of thousands serving Saul. Then he was on the run, hiding, but he would never lift a hand against God's anointed king, Saul. But he burned with passion And when he became king, and he did it right, when he became king, there was one passion in his heart that overshadowed a lot of other ones, and that was to see a permanent place for the Ark of the Covenant, to build a temple to the Lord, to see worship established in Jerusalem. And so he set out to do that. He brought the Ark of the Covenant in, and he danced before the Lord, and they played musical instruments, which hadn't been done before. David instituted that, that type of worship, ushering the Ark of the Covenant in. And when he inquired of the Lord about building his house, what did God tell him? He said, you're not going to see it built because you have blood on your hands. We know that David wasn't perfect. He had made some mistakes. And one of the mistakes disqualified him from building the house of the Lord. So it passed from David to Solomon. Solomon was the wisest man to ever live. He was wealthy. Man, this temple, Solomon's temple, was built according to David's specifications. But it was inlaid with jewels, gold. I mean, the the stones were had gold over them, jewels and silver and all this precious metal. 
It was a sight for everyone to see. People from all over the world came there to see that temple. I did a little research on it. Do you know that it was equivalent to 20 story high? It was 207 feet tall at its toppest point. Isn't that crazy? I was like, wow, two, I mean, in the desert. How many people have ever been to the desert? All right. Building a 20-story building in the desert, that's an engineering feat. The ceiling, when you went into the, into the, the inner sanctuary or the inner place, was 50 feet high. The ceiling was 190 feet long and 80 feet wide and 50 feet tall. Pretty big building for an uh, ancient world, huh? Now we see buildings, you know, maybe that big today. But think about the ancient world. But we don't see gold and jewels inlaid <laughs> everywhere, do we? This was magnificent. It was David's heart to see God worshipped in such a place. But as all kings do, Solomon died. And a series of, of kings sprung up in his place. You know, and if you look at Second Chronicles, some of them were good and some of them were bad. It says some of them did evil in the sight of the Lord and some of them were good in the sight of the Lord. But the majority of them weren't so good. There was one good king that, I can, that comes to my mind, Josiah. Josiah just ridded Israel of all pagan worship. He tore down all the high places. He brought, and this is really crazy, they had actually taken the Ark of the Covenant out of the temple and moved it somewhere else. That's how evil they were. That they had removed the presence of God from the temple, these evil kings. But Josiah brings the Ark of the Covenant back to the temple, reestablished temple worship, but it was very short-lived. Josiah was killed in battle, and then we have another series of evil kings. So that brings us to 2 Chronicles. So if you will turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 36, uh, verse 11. I know that, uh, I think that's, what's that start at? 15? I went back just a little bit, but that's okay. Um, I was reviewing it this morning and I went back. So just stay right there and I'll work my way up to it. All right, so we're going to start. In uh, verse 11, it says, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, his God, and he did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke uh, for the Lord. He rebelled, everybody say rebelled, against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had uh, made him swear allegiance by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. How many ever people have ever, a grandparent or somebody ever said, you got a stiff neck? You ever heard somebody say that to me? I never understood. Like, don't you stiffen your neck up me, boy. Like, Grandma, what are you talking about? When you got a stiff neck, what happens? The only thing that you can do is what? Look straight forward, right? can't see what's coming from the left or to the right. It's pride. 
you puff your chest up, you're looking straight forward. You don't see what other people see, you only see what you want to see, which is straight in front of you. That's tied to rebellion, it's tied to pride, and that's what this king did. He stiffened his neck in pride against the Lord God Almighty. That sounds like a recipe for disaster to me. Furthermore, all the officials and the priests and the people were very unfaithful, following all abominations of the nations. And they had defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. How could this happen? How could God's people that he brought out of the desert, out of bondage with Egypt, how could they come to this place where they even defiled the very house of God? I think about my own life when I ask myself questions like this. I was in church my whole life. My mom, she wasn't perfect, but she made sure I went to church. She made sure that I knew right from wrong. She made sure that um, the word of God was preached in my life. My grandparents were great role models of Christian faith and what it meant to be live a Christian life. I still rebelled. I still went my own way. Matter of fact, when I got back from Iraq, my uncle, Tom, he's gone on to be with Jesus. I never really liked him, to be quite honest with you, because he was so one of those guys that never held back, like shooting straight. And almost to the point where it was kind of hurting. So we went out to dinner after uh, I got back from Iraq. And uh, my Uncle Tom says, Jamie, I'm really proud of you. And I'm like, really, Uncle Tom? Like the first nice thing he's ever said to me. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, man, I thought you'd be dead or in prison by the time you were 19. Like, yeah, there you go. Thanks, Uncle Tom. Just because we know right from wrong doesn't mean that we always do it. And sometimes we can follow, be stiff-necked, and we follow this trail so far out. Man, when we finally, somebody knocks our head around, we look to see where we've been, we're way off track. That's what rebellion does. You know, I'm talking to the young people and whoever it applies to. You know rebellion, the sin of rebellion is such as witchcraft? Sin of divination is what the Bible says. God sees rebellion as witchcraft. You know, in my house, I only, I only spank for two reasons. You know that? My kid's in here. Ethan, Ethan's back there. He's, he's going like this. I just saw him. Two reasons that I spank my children. Lying and rebellion. Lying and rebellion. Everything else, I just take stuff away or put them in a corner or, you know, whatever, other different things. But lying and rebellion are the two big ones. Why? Because they're witchcraft. Rebellion is. So it's all about the heart. And that's what was the downfall of the Israelites at this time, was that rebellion that was found in their heart. 
So if we pick up uh, right there in 15, it says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messenger because he had compassion on his people and on on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messenger of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against them and his his people until there was no remedy. (laughs) You know, Devin, Lauren, and Ethan were so compliant. They wanted to please us. Everything, I mean... When Devin was little, all I had to do is say, where's the paddle? And he'd be like, I'll be good. I'll be good. I made a paddle when Devin was about uh, one and a half, two years old, coming into those that when his will emerged that I made a paddle. It was a nice paddle, too. I still have it. About this long, half-inch plywood. I cut it out, sanded it all down, varnished it. I mean, I was a new daddy, so I was like, I'm going to do this right, you know, Devin was our first, and he was compliant. Lauren was our second. She was a little mischievous, but uh, ultimately pretty compliant. Ethan, I didn't even have to spank, man. All I had to do was look at Ethan. and be like, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> Isn't that right? I mean, he's so tenderhearted, man. He was just like, no, don't be disappointed in me. You don't have to punish. I was going to be asked, what do you think your punishment should be? Oh, this is punishment enough. Right. Then Eden and Aiden came along. If I had them two first, I was going to be honest with you. I don't know if we'd have any more kids. I don't know if it was because I'm older. Because, you know, Devin's 23 and Aiden's 8. So there's like 15 years between my oldest and my youngest. I have five kids. <clears throat> Devin used to climb up on the back of the couch I'd be laying on the floor after I got home from work because that was my favorite spot to get down there. And Devin would jump off the top of the back of the couch and land on my stomach. I'm like, Poof. yeah, funny kid, huh? Aiden does that? I'm going to the hospital. It's just not the same when you're 45 as when you were 25. But you know, it, it's, it, what's really funny when I read scriptures like this and I, I kind of think about life application and I think about my family. You know, it says that the wrath of the Lord rose against them. Man, what do you have to do for the wrath of the Lord to rise against you? I know what happens at home. You know, my wife, she's, she's about five feet tall. She's about this big. I like standing over the top of her and going, you're kind of short. She's like, yeah, I know I'm short, but I can take you down. <laughs> one day, one day, I came home, and she, you know, I was a martial art teacher for a long time. She goes, would you teach me how to flip you? I said, what? She said, you want me to teach you how to flip me? I'm like, no, I got to teach you how to flip me. But she's a fiery little thing, and, uh, but she's always busy, 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 busy doing stuff. She has compassion on her kids. She loves her kids. 
But them two little boys, they'd be picking on each other all the time. One day, Aiden takes out a pencil. He goes over the pencil sharpener. He's about two years old, two and a half years old. He's like, mm, sharpens the pencil. Checks the point out. Walks over. And he jabs Ian in the back. He's like, ah! And they're hollering and yelling and stuff. Kim had all day been going, you boys knock it off. You leave each other alone. Look, I'm telling, look, come here, son. Come here. Look me in the eye. Don't hurt your brother. No biting, no pinching, no nothing, okay? You understand? All right. All right. Jesus loves you. Go on. A few minutes later, mom, he bit me. He did this. He did that, right? And Kim's like, look, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm warning you. One more time and you're going to get it. Then finally, what happens? That's it. So when mama reaches, that's it, and she starts going like this, people start running. I start running because I don't want to be collateral damage. She's like, where's that paddle? And then the little two little boys, they're like, they're like, oh, we'll be good. <laughs> oh, it's too late now. <laughs> you done did it. You already reached that threshold. And that's what happened with the Israelites. They had reached a threshold where God had had enough. He had sent messenger after messenger after messenger. He had compassion on them. He tried to teach them. He tried to tell them what to do. Tried to correct them, but they stiffened their necks. They were rebellious. So that was it. His wrath rose against them. And it says there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary. He had no compassion on the young men or the virgins, the old men or the infirm. He gave them all into his hands, all the articles of the house of God, great and small, and all the treasures of the king and his officers. He brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. And they burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. Those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon. And they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord from the mouth of Jeremiah until the land enjoys its Sabbath. <clears throat> Had reached a point where there was no remedy. So God said, okay, all right, I'm going to turn you over. So the first thing that he did was he, I see here is he, he removed his protect, protection, right? So you know, authority is this, one of the most powerful principles in the universe. Michael Fletcher, the pastor in Fayetteville that we sat under, used to say, when you learn how to operate under authority, God can place you in authority. But when you step out from underneath that umbrella of authority, you step out from underneath the protection of God. You're out there on your own. And that's what they had done. They had stepped out. They were no longer underneath God's protection of his authority. So he brought up the king of the Chaldeans. 
to use as his instrument. You don't want to be in that place. You don't want to be in a place where God has had enough and has to turn you over to the evil in the world to bring you back into compliance. They call that the reproofs of life. That's a bad place to be. Been there, done that. It stinks. So he brought up, brought up the king of the Chaldeans against him. And this, is, this was really surprising to me when I read this. It said that he didn't have compassion. Man, he must have been awful mad. No compassion. The young men, the virgins, the old men, the infirm, he gave them all into his hand. They killed everyone. There was millions of people. You know how many people came back after 70 years of exile? 50,000. Wow. Jerusalem, Judea, the whole, the whole region was decimated. God removed his protection. He removed his direction. They thought they were going that way. Well, he said, okay, well, now you're going that way. You're going to Babylon. And he removed his presence. All the articles of the temple were taken away. All the things that they used to worship Taken away. Ark of the Covenant taken away. They're not even sure what really happened to it. God gave them into the hands of the Chaldeans. There's a really interesting section of Scripture right down here at the end. It says, until the land enjoyed its Sabbaths. Do you ever, you ever catch that? You ever wonder why that's there? If you have a good study Bible, it'll probably tell you. But rebellion for the Israelites went far beyond just what they were doing, the king was doing, and what the priests and everybody were doing in the temple. It actually went all the way back to the time of Eli. 490 years, the Israelites had disobeyed God in one particular area the Sabbath rest for the land. See, every seven years, they were supposed to let the land rest. They weren't supposed to plant on it. So, the, so as we were supposed to have a, a Sabbath, the land was supposed to have a Sabbath. And remember, this is the promised land. This is the land that God had promised uh, to their forefathers, to Moses, to Abraham. This is a promise, and God's promises always come to pass. But they hadn't obeyed this one law of the Sabbath rest for the land for 490 years. So if you do the math, how many sevens go into 49? Seven. Well, you add the zero for the 490. How many years were they in exile? Seventy. One year for every Sabbath rest that they didn't observe. They were in exile for 70 years because they disobeyed God and didn't let the land of promise rest as God said to do. So God brought correction. After, after that, 
something really interesting happened. Do you know that God established kings and he tears kings down, right? So they were taken out uh, of Jerusalem and Judea by the Babylonians. And kind of interesting, a couple interesting things is, you know, they were, they were taken back and they were uh, servants. And it was the cream of the crop, by the way. It wasn't just com- usually common people. It was the best that Jerusalem and Judea had to offer. They took them back and made them servants. So the cream of the crop was brought low, taken back to Babylon, served them there, and, but they were allowed to worship their God. So worship continued, not temple worship, not sacrifice, none of that stuff, but they were still allowed to read the law and to study the law and to worship their God in Babylon. But they weren't going to be let go. So God rose up another king, the king of Persia, to come and to overthrow uh, the Babylonian empire. So we're going to pick up uh, in Ezra chapter 1. We're going to see what happens right here. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fill the word of the Lord, the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up in the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it into writing, saying, Thus saith King Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, And he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, in Judea. Whoever there is among you of all the people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judea, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place that he may live, let let the men of that place support him with silver and gold and goods and cattle together with the farewell offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Isn't that cool? So Cyrus, a pagan king, this is really neat if you read your notes and your study Bible, study a little bit. Cyrus, a pagan king, is listening to a prophecy from Isaiah saying that the house of the Lord will be established. And it's being read to him by Daniel. So he hears it, and in his hearing, he, he's moved. God moves on his heart, and he says, yes, that's what's going to happen. And when a king of Persia writes something down and sends out a decree, it's law. So if you don't do what he says, then you're defying the king, and it's punishable by death. So all the Israelites that are scattered throughout the land, Cyrus sends out a proclamation and says, hey, you, everybody that lives around you has to help you get back. They got to give you gold, they got to give you silver, they got to give you cattle, they got to give you whatever you need as a goodwill offering to go back. And not only that, they got to give you money to give towards the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, thus saith Cyrus, the king of, of Persia. How cool is that? He moves kings and kingdoms to see his promises fulfilled. God has never spoken anything and it not come to pass. or it will come to pass. You know, we live, we live in that tension between the already and the not yet. It's done, it's finished. Jesus said it on the cross, it's finished, but we haven't seen the fulfillment of everything yet. That's why we can't discount the, the promises of Israel. That's why we can't discount 
the promises that are in the Old Testament. Some people say, make an argument, well, that's the Old Covenant. We don't really worry about that. Man, there's some promises there. How many people here are uh, children of the promise? Of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I don't know. Y'all better be raising your hand because if you're not, then you don't, you're not going to participate in the promise that the Lord has for you. You are spiritual Israel. You are grafted into the vine. You are children of promise. And God has made you some big promises. So you have to, you have to know what the promises are to have, put your faith and engage them and see them to come to pass in your life. God told them that, I mean, Isaiah, he told Isaiah, prophesied through him, said that he would rebuild the house, rebuild the house in Israel, in Jerusalem. He moved through a pagan king. And that brings us up to uh, chapter 3 where our main text is. Man, I have 11 minutes. Look at me go. I usually preach like 45, 50 minutes, you know. Pastor Dave's like, no, you got to preach 35. And I'm like, oh, man, you got to be kidding me. Y'all just want to stay here longer, don't you? No. All right, let's turn to uh, Ezra chapter 3. And we're going to jump all the way over to, let's start at 10. So Cyrus sends out this proclamation, and he says that everybody that was in their lands, the Israelites, could go back. So he sends them back, and one of the leaders that took them back, almost 50,000 people, was a guy named Zerubbabel, and then a priest named Jeshua. The significance of these two men Zerubbabel was in the Davidic line. If there was going to be another king in Israel, it was this guy. He was a direct descendant of David. You know, this historical thing. After Solomon died and, his te- and the temple was built, it was 410 years of good and evil kings until the destruction of the temple. 410 years. 70 years of exile, and then God brings him back. Just think about the time spans of this. <laughs> God's patience with his people. So Zerubbabel gets everything together along with Jeshua, the Levites, and the people that were uh, in charge of temple worship, and they, they go back to Jerusalem. It takes them months to get back there. Some 800 miles, I believe, they have to travel. What's the first thing that they do when they get back to Israel? First thing that they do, they set up an altar to God. Not only an altar to God, but they put an altar in the exact place where the old altar was. And they make sacrifice for their own sin. They begin to restore burnt offerings and all the different sacrificial system that God had uh, prescribed for them to do. The ark wasn't there. The temple wasn't there. Nothing was there. 
But temple worship could be began at that point because they had an altar. And they made sacrifice for sin. So after they built the altar and they gave sacrifice, they began to work on the foundation of the temple. And so once they had the foundation laid, this is the section of Scripture we're going to focus on in the next few minutes here. It says that um, now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord and the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and Levites and the sons of Aspah with symbols to praise the Lord according to the direction of David. Did you get that? According to the direction of David, of Israel. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good. For his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundations of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's household, the old men who had seen the first temple wept with loud voices. When the foundation of his house was laid before their eyes, the whole, uh, while many shouted with joy, so that the people could not distinguish the shouts of weeping of the people from the shout, uh, the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far off. So this is the picture. They come into the land, they build the altar, they make sacrifice, they begin to work on the temple, they lay the foundation, they get in all their garb, they get in and they, they have their symbols, they have their trumpets, they have everything. They're going to worship God. They're going to lay the foundation. And all the young guys are over there going, yeah, God is awesome. God is great. Thank you for his goodness. And all the old men are over there going, (laughs) crying. Why? Because they knew what they had lost. The young men didn't have a point of reference. The young men didn't know what the old temple looked like. They They didn't know how much they had lost. You know, as we age, we, we look back, we self-reflect, we get a little bit wiser. And I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more I appreciate the grace of God. Because I know what I used to be. I have a frame of reference. I know that if I had continued on the path that I was on, I'd be dead or in jail by 19. But thanks be to God when he intervened in my life and he, and he changed my direction. See, that's what they did. The Israelites, first thing that they did when they got there, made sacrifice for their sin. They repented. Repentance. They Ask God to cleanse them of their sins. And who could do this? Joshua. He was the grandson of the last seeding high priest. He was there. He was, a, he was in the line of high priest. He was the one that was able to give offering to God. He was the one that was able to cleanse the sins. Now, we know that we have somebody, that a high priest, that is doing that in heaven for us right now. Jesus. 
But the second thing that they did was they accepted God's grace. They put God in his rightful place in their hearts. They laid the foundation and thus ended the 70 years of exile. And then they worshiped. Like I said, some of the old men wept because they knew what what the former looked like. They knew the splendor of Solomon's temple. They knew what Jerusalem had looked like before it was completely destroyed. They knew how the walls protected them. And at this point, they had no protection. They were st- it was still laid bare. There was three uh, journeys that they made to rebuild the temple, to reestablish temple worship, and then rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Three separate ones. Zerubbabel and Jeshua, Ezra and Nehemiah. It took years and years and years for this to be accomplished. But the people never gave up. They never gave up on the promise of God because they knew that God's word was true. And they worshiped. So New Testament application, what does that mean for you and me? God being the giver of grace, us being the receiver of grace, what is our response I just showed you how they responded. They repented. They they accepted God's grace, that he was giving them this land back. He was fulfilling his promise, and then they worshiped. What is our response? If God, once you come to that point in your mind where you realize that you're a sinner, you realize that you have much to be grieved about, but then God turns you to the cross, and then he pours out his grace upon you, What is your response?